from the capital city of Charleston, West Virginia, this is Inside West Virginia Politics with Mark Curtis. Inside West Virginia Politics is brought to you by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. Well, happy weekend, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside West Virginia Politics. I'm your host, Mark Curtis. We're going to talk about a lot of political issues in our first segment. Let me introduce Gary Zuckett. He is the executive director of West Virginia Citizen Action Group uh, based here in Charleston, but uh, certainly have a presence statewide. Good to have you on the show again. Thank you. Appreciate it being here. We uh, talked, I interviewed you the other day about this proposal from the United Mine Workers, no less, that all um, wind and solar energy jobs in West Virginia that are coming, and we know they're coming, some are already here, that the miners get first crack at those jobs. Your thoughts? Well, we absolutely need a new energy economy here in West Virginia, like it is happening around the country. And uh, I totally agree that the miners should be uh, at the head of the line to receive that type of retraining and good quality union jobs in the new energy economy. We, we need to take care of our coal communities. They've helped power our nation for 100 years. Yeah. And so let, let's treat them right. While we're on the subject of mining, you back the Reclaim Act. What will it do or what does it do? Uh, what's the goal there and what's the, uh, the advantageous part of it? Well, regardless of what happens with any of the new administration's uh, initiatives, there's a big pot of money in the abandoned mine reclamation fund in DC just sitting there of you know, billions of dollars and the Reclaim Act would release some of those sooner rather than later to again put uh, unemployed miners back to work reclaiming these abandoned mine lands where the company go belly, goes belly up and there's nobody to fix it. Yeah. We were talking earlier about a <laughs> flat land where they've done a mountaintop <laughs> removal site might be a perfect place to put a solar array, right? Exactly. I mean, there's some economic development there for the coal fields right there. Yeah. Let's uh, change. I mentioned we were going to talk about a lot of topics. The For the People Act, we had a big rally for it here last week in, in Charleston. What would it do? Well, the For the People Act is a very comprehensive bill that would uh, increase uh, voter access by mandating automatic voter registration and same-day uh, mail, same-day voting uh, on election day across the country. You know, we have this patchwork of states that have laws doing this and laws doing that, and uh, I think we need a federal uh, bill to just get everybody in line. Um, it would also require the redistricting, which is coming up this, uh, towards the end of the year now, uh, to be uh, a, a bipartisan process rather than to have uh, rather than have the politicians picking their voters which is the gerrymandering aspect yeah. of redistricting we would have a, a, a bipartisan uh, committee that would draw those boundaries and that's a big one campaign finance there's tons and tons of dark money undisclosed money in our political system buying elections and, and it would deal with that cybersecurity, and then ethics in government. So yeah. it's pretty comprehensive. All right, that's passed the House already. It's still awaiting a vote in the U.S. Senate. Let's get to the subject of Medicare and negotiating drug prices, something you, you guys support. What would be the advantage there? Well, this is a no-brainer. I mean, Medicare pays right now from the drug companies whatever they want to charge. Unlike the VA, the Veterans Administration, they get to negotiate with the drug companies to lower the drug prices. So why can't our seniors benefit 
from that type of price negotiation too. This is very popular. N nearly 90% in polls across the country think that prescription drugs cost too much and that, that the government should do something to bring down those costs. Like a, a third of uh, uh, our country, a third of our patients have a hard time affording their drugs. Some of them have cut pills, some of them skip, skip pills. Uh, so this is a, a real crisis. And uh, you know, we have a, a system here, uh, basically a monopoly system by the drug companies that, that really needs to change. We're down to 30 seconds. Just briefly explain what West Virginia Citizen Action Group is and what your website is so folks can find out more. Sure, well, Citizen Action is uh, a, a group of citizens that want to uh, promote progressive public policy, public policy as, as if people matters instead of the big corporations. And our webpage is WVCAG for citizenactiongroup.org. All right, Gary Zuckett, the executive director of the West Virginia Citizens Citizen Action Group. <laughs> it's singular, not plural, Citizen Action Group. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's always good to have you on our program. Very good, thank you. We'll have more of Inside West Virginia Politics after this break. Stay with us. Inside West Virginia Politics is brought to you by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. And welcome back this weekend to Inside West Virginia Politics. We want to update the COVID-19 situation here in West Virginia. We're joined by Dr. Clay Marsh. He is the COVID-19 czar for West Virginia. Good to have you back on the program, Clay. Thank you, Mark. It's always good to be with you. We like to talk about trends, and one of the trends we're seeing is more variant cases of COVID-19 in West Virginia. Now we're past the 1100 mark. Why is this so serious, and why do you think we're seeing such a jump? Well, Mark, the, the United States is, is also now seeing the United Kingdom variant of COVID-19 become the most common uh, form of this virus in the country. And we also are seeing this variant as the most common isoform of the virus in West Virginia. The issue with the variants, which really are just talking about genetic changes in the virus and the viruses it replicates, which gives the virus an advantage. The United Kingdom variant is about 50% more infectious and about 50% more lethal. And the thing that's really concerning about this virus is it seems to have a higher predilection to infect children and to be able to spread more easily from person to person. Why is it, I was gonna ask you, because you've talked about that in the briefings, that it is more, children are more susceptible, young people, and I know there's been a great push to move vaccinations to the people 16 to 35. Absolutely, Mark. And, and so when we look at 2020 to 2021, we see a real change in not only the age of people who are being uh, diagnosed with COVID, with the average age moving from 44 to 34. We're also seeing a big change in the number of 10 to 19 year olds and 20 to 29 year olds who are infected with COVID-19. And the variant, particularly the United Kingdom variant, we believe is largely responsible for this because of the genetic changes in the spike proteins, the part of the virus that binds to our body and, and allows the virus to get uh, uptaken into our cells and to infect us, that that variant actually infects people much more efficiently, binds to the receptor better, and causes infection at much lower numbers of, uh, of, number of the viruses that people are exposed to. It is widely anticipated that the FDA and CDC will recommend next week 
that the vaccinations go now to people aged 12 through 15. Currently, the, the, low, uh, the lowest age is 16. Why is it advantageous to get the 12 to 15 year olds into the mix now too? Well, Mark, it's, it's really important for us to, to consider the really the two sides of our strategy for COVID-19. The first side that we did really early in the, in the vaccination distribution was target the people most likely to die from COVID-19 infection, including our uh, nursing home patients, uh, people living in uh, assisted living areas and our elders. And as the governor coined the Save Our Wisdom campaign, and we've been highly successful doing that. We're approaching 80% of our over 65-year-old population with one dose of vaccine and almost 70% with both doses, which is extraordinary. And we've seen a benefit of that with mortality rates dropping by over 85% week to week over 2021 versus the end of 2020. Now the second side of our strategy though, is trying to reduce the spread of COVID-19 because we still have a, you know, a number of people in our state that are not vaccinated. And we know with this new variant, as we just discussed, that it has the ability to also infect children and children in this way are per, perhaps exposed to long-term consequences of COVID, which of course we're worried about, but they also then can transmit to other elders or other um, people in West Virginia who have coexisting medical conditions or becoming infected may result in severe disease, hospitalization, or death. So we see this whole population of 10 to 19 now becoming the highest transmission age group in West Virginia. And if we look at the variant spread, then we increase that to the 10 to 29 year old group. So that is the group that's really spreading COVID-19 most consistently in West Virginia. And therefore vaccinations are so important to protect each of those people, those residents, but also to make sure that we reduce the spread of COVID-19 to other more vulnerable West Virginians who haven't been vaccinated. I want to thank Dr. Clay Marsh, the COVID-19 czar for the state of West Virginia for joining us. Good information, Clay. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, Mark. You as well. We'll have more of Inside West Virginia Politics after this break. Inside West Virginia Politics is brought to you by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. And welcome back to Inside West Virginia Politics. We're going to continue our discussion on COVID-19. We've heard from Dr. Clay Marsh. Now it's Dr. Ayn Amjad, the state's public health officer. Good to have you on the program. Thanks, Mark. You are at the Joint Interagency Task Force for Vaccinations. The acronym is JIADF. Uh, explain what goes on there. So here we have um, a lot of people from the hospital association, Department of Education, our pharmacy team, um, a lot of people who basically are helping roll out the vaccine. So we're sitting at the National Guard headquarters in Charleston, but it's a big space for a lot of people to work together. Yeah, and I know you're, you're wearing headsets because it's important not to disturb. The, I mean, it's a beehive of activity. It's like nerve center central for the COVID-19 response in West Virginia, right? 
Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So this just eliminates a lot of the noise and a lot of the other distractions. Yeah, but yeah I'm not, not going to sing for you or anything like no, that. No, I know that's the Britney Spears look, but you promised not to <laughs> sing or dance. Okay, that's a good thing. Um, listen, serious on a serious note, um, you're getting ready for the anticipated announcement that 12 to 15-year-olds will be allowed to be vaccinated in West Virginia all across the nation. We're waiting from the CDC and the FDA to approve that this coming week. How is that going to look in terms of a rollout uh, here in West Virginia? Yes, we're anticipating that hopefully next week and we are excited because we have been preparing for this for actually several months. So um, the 12 to 15 year olds, you know, are um, a good segment of our population. We know that with the variants out there, the UK variants, that it's highly transmissible against our younger population. We've been seeing 10 to 29 year olds um, increase cases. So we really want our young children to be vaccinated, especially with summertime and school um, letting out. We want um, the kids to get vaccinated. So we have been preparing for this for several um, weeks or not months right now. So we are excited announced that hopefully early next week, but we've been preparing for this and getting ready to roll that out um, as soon as possible. I assume we're going to have clinics inside of middle schools. They've been very successful at a lot of the high schools around the states because the students are there. We're going to see the same in middle schools. Yes, so we will get it to middle schools. We'll get it any to any sports venues, anywhere we have um, children um, that are in 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 groups that we can get to. So we are willing to bring it to those places. So we know school is going to be out pretty soon, but we are, you know, surveying schools, middle schools, wherever there are children, you know, in areas that we can bring it to. We want to make it convenient. We want to make it accessible. So whatever we need to do to get to those places, we're going to do that. So you're right. We did um, get to high schools to get when it was available to 16 year olds and above, but with the 12 to 15 year olds, we will take it to those places. So there's a lot of summer camps and there's a lot of places that we can go. So we'll do whatever we need to do to get to that, that population that's needed throughout the summertime as soon as it's um, available to the 12 to 15 year olds for sure. I know the feds are talking about this just being for the Pfizer vaccine. That means two doses. Look, I was a teenager once, you were a teenager once, uh, probably a lot more recent than me, but um, how do you assure that kids are going to show up for the second shot? I mean, as a teen, I was distracted and not always responsible about making appointments and things like that. How do you assure that we get the second shots in their arms? You know, I think kids are used to getting vaccines. You know, it's part of their school programs. They're, u- they're used to that. And of course, parents are going to help. So I, I, I'm not worried about that as much. I think with um, children seem to be very compliant. I've noticed a lot of kids wearing their masks. They're used to it. Um, I, I don't. That's not a concern, I don't think. I think kids are very easy to get to to go along with things and be very responsible. I, I've noticed that I, when I would go to some schools and things, you see kids putting on their masks properly. They even have cool masks and things, and especially with vaccines and stuff, you know, they're, they're kind of used to that as part of their regimen of schools and stuff. So, and of course, parents are going to help and be responsible. So to me, I don't, I don't see that as being a barrier as long as you make it accessible and easy for them. And we're going to make it as easy and accessible for kids as possible. We're, we'll take it to them and make it as easy as for them as possible. We don't make it hard for them at all. And I remind the 12 to 17 year olds, they'll need a signed permission slip from a parent uh, to get the vaccine. One last question I have, and this is on a totally different subject. Um, we did a story the other day about the problem of getting vaccinations to rural areas. Are we seeing that problem in West Virginia? I understand it's happening a lot of places around the country. And what are we doing to get more shots in rural areas? So in West Virginia, we have a lot of mobile clinics. Um, we have the mobile cap- capabilities. So we have vans that go out. Uh, we have them coming out of the Jayatif. We have them um, with local partners, health departments, um, community-based clinics. So we are taking those actually, you know, in in vans and things like that. So we can take that to people. You know, before with the ultra cold storage and Pfizer, those capabilities um, are um, accessible now because we will take it to you. So a lot of people are becoming mobile with that and um, that does make it less 
of a barrier now. So we have a mobile capabilities to take it to you. So it's, that's not a barrier for us, I don't think, is more. Um, we are willing to take it to you, um, and I think that's helped a lot. All right, we're going to put the DHHR website up on our screen where viewers can go to get more information. We want to thank Dr. Aym Andraut, the uh, state's uh, public health officer. Good to see you, doctor. Thanks, Mark. Have a good day. You too. And we'll have more of Inside West Virginia Politics after this break. Inside West Virginia Politics is brought to you by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. And welcome back to our final segment this weekend on Inside West Virginia Politics. We want to talk about the medical cannabis program here in West Virginia. I'm uh, glad to introduce Rusty Williams. He is the patient advocate on the West Virginia Medical Cannabis Advisory Board, correct? Yes, sir. The reason we're having you in is this week DHHR opened the process for patients to apply for their medical cannabis ID card. And you need a card in order to purchase the product when it's eventually available. How is this going to work? Uh, well, you know, patients will, they've got to go through one of the approved physicians and the list, you can find that on the DHHR's website. Once you have seen uh, an approved physician and they have certified that you have one of the conditions outlined in the Medical Cannabis Act, you'll be issued your card and once the dispensaries are open, you'll be able to go in and purchase your cannabis legally. What are some of the medical conditions? Uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty strict list. It's cancer, ALS, there's Parkinson's, um, neurological problems, chronic pain. There's, there's a, a really, really strict list. And to me, that's one of the problems with the program. I think that by, by setting up that list, we're leaving a lot of patients out. Um, I hear from folks every day, people struggling with things like gastroparesis, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, a laundry list of conditions that patients in other medical cannabis states are legally allowed to use cannabis. Um, yeah. Here in West Virginia, unfortunately, they, those conditions did not make the list. So personally, I would, like to see, um, I would like to see the program amended so that any doctor in West Virginia, as long as they go through the program and get registered through the DHHR, could recommend cannabis to any patient they feel could benefit. Obviously, the product is still not available. The growers, processors, and now dispensaries were approved, but of course that hasn't happened because we're still waiting for the product to grow and be uh, rendered and then put on countertops. So when, when might we see this available to the, the general public that has a card? Well, we're hearing different, uh, different estimates Estimations. Um, I've heard everything from early to late fall. Uh, some of the folks that I've talked to that are in the industry say that it could be January before product is available in the dispensaries. Okay. Um, we should point out, too, that this legislation is amendable. Uh, there was a, a movement in the past session to allow people to grow a certain limited number of their own plants. Why do you support that? Why would that be advantageous to patients? Well, we are one of the most economically depressed states in the country. And one of the things that's kind of universal in medical cannabis states, it takes a few years before the prices in the dispensary level out. Um, you know, prices are pretty high once, once the doors initially open. And I'm worried that we're going to leave a lot of folks out, you know, price them out of their medicine. Um, when I was going through my, my chemo treatments, I was very fortunate. My, my mom and my stepdad lived right across the river. I was able to stay with them. Um, I had treatments five days a week, six hours at a time, so it did not allow me to go to work and function normally. Now, I had a safety net. 
I worry about folks that don't have that safety net. You know, um, had, had I not been able to go and live with my parents, I would have gone through chemotherapy and cancer homeless. And uh, you know, I think that allowing patients to grow small amounts for personal use and allowing caregivers to grow for patients that, that don't have the ability to grow their own is absolutely crucial. And uh, you know, it's in order to create a medical cannabis program that truly looks out for the best interest of the patient, it, it's something that we need to do now. Yeah, and I think the legislature can also expand the list of the conditions. Do, would you anticipate that coming up in the next session? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, last session there was a bill, uh, Senate Bill 231, that would have greatly expanded the, the list of conditions. It also would have allowed patients and caregivers to grow limited amounts. Um, it created what they were referring to as compassion certificates. And um, it would have also put flour and edibles as uh, into statute to make them acceptable methods of delivery. Yeah, it's hard to believe uh, this has been four years since the bipartisan vote in the legislature approved medical cannabis. Governor Justice signed it uh, when he was still a Democrat. Um, four years. It, it, has it just been too long and frustrating that the, it has taken this long to, to make it finally happen? It's absolutely frustrating. You know, patients started reaching out to me almost instantly. You know, as soon as the law was signed, um, you know, I, I, I hear from patients every day. And unfortunately, some of those folks who reached out to me once the law was signed uh, have passed away. They didn't live long enough to access the medicine. And, I, you know, that's something that, um, I have to live with every day. It really bothers me because even you know, last night I heard from a patient at two o'clock in the morning. You know, I think they feel like it's safer to reach out to me than it is their lawmakers and admit that they're you know to using something illegal. And uh, it, it's really frustrating to see that you know here we are four years down the line and we've still got patients suffering. Right. You can find it medcanwv.gov. There yeah, we go. Um, medcanwv.gov. Yeah, it's the the website is you know to me um, it, it's. A crucial tool for patients. They yeah. can go in there. They can see the the physicians that are approved. They can see the list of conditions that you know that are certified by the Medical Cannabis Act. And all the information you need is on that website. Right. <laughs> Rusty Williams is the patient advocate on the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board here in West Virginia. We thank him for joining us. We'll see you back here next week on Inside West Virginia Politics. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Inside West Virginia Politics. You can hear more from state, local, and federal lawmakers each and every Sunday morning on WOWK-TV in Charleston, WBOY-TV in Clarksburg, WDVM in the Eastern Panhandle, WTRF in Wheeling, and WVNS in Beckley. You can also find a new episode of the Inside West Virginia Politics podcast right here on this feed every Monday morning. If you like the show, make sure to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Inside West Virginia Politics is a Star Media Group production, hosted and managed by Mark Curtis. Produced and edited by Mia Chiato, Elizabeth Hughes, Logan Roberts, Rick Johnson, and Kimberly Blackburn. Inside West Virginia Politics is recorded and edited inside the studios of WOWK-TV in Charleston, West Virginia. All rights reserved.